welcome back to the Tide Podcast. My name is Claire. And my name is Anna Kate, and we're coming to you live from my basement. Today we're going to be talking about physician-assisted suicide, not to be confused with euthanasia. Physician-assisted suicide is the voluntary termination of one's own life by administration of a lethal substance with the direct or indirect assistance of a physician. Euthanasia is defined as the painless killing of a patient suffering from an incurable and painful disease or an irreversible coma. It is similar to physician-assisted suicide, but it is not backed by legal authority. Physician-assisted suicide is for patients who have terminal illnesses and are experiencing great pain. It was first legalized in Oregon in 1995, followed by Washington in 2008, Vermont in 2013, and California and Colorado in 2016. More recently, it has been legalized in Washington, D.C. in 2017, Hawaii in 2019, and starting August 1st of 2019, it will be legal in New Jersey. There are many different steps and parameters when it comes to requesting assisted suicide. First, the patients have to make an initial oral request to their physician, and the physician must be licensed in the state that the request was made. The physicians are required to tell their patients about other services, such as hospice and pain management options. The patient is required to tell their family that they are requesting assisted suicide. After the first oral request, the patients must wait 15 days in every state, except Hawaii, which is 20 days. After that time has passed, they are able to make a second oral request. The patients are also required to send a written request any time after their first oral request, except in D.C., where the request must be written between the first and second oral request. After all the requests have been fulfilled, the patient must wait 48 hours before the doctor can write the prescription. This is true of every state except California and Colorado, where there is no waiting period. There are also criteria that the patients must meet. For example, the patient has to be at least 18 in order to request assisted suicide, and they must be diagnosed by a physician who has determined that they have six months left to live. Additionally, the patients must be capable of making healthcare decisions, be capable of administering or ingesting the prescribed medication, and two physicians must determine whether all the criteria have been met. Most importantly, Every requirement must be met without exception. Questions arise concerning whether or not assisted suicide violates the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath is said by new physicians, and by saying it, they promise to uphold certain ethical standards, one of which is do no harm. There are doctors with strong opinions on both sides of the argument. One man who thinks it does violate the Hippocratic Oath is Dr. Jack End, the president of the American College of Physicians. Dr. N was interviewed January of 2018 for an article titled, Hospitalists Weigh Ethical, Practical Impacts of Aid in Dying Laws. In the interview, he is quoted as saying, Physician-assisted suicide asks physicians to breach both the general duties of first do no harm and to act in the patient's best interest. He also mentions that it breaches a prohibition on physician-assisted suicide that has been in place since Hippocrates, the man whom the Hippocratic Oath was named after. On the other hand, there are doctors who believe that physician-assisted suicide does not violate the Hippocratic Oath. One such doctor is Michael J. Strauss, who has both an MD and an MPH, which stands for a Master of Public Health. Dr. Strauss was quoted in a letter to the editor titled, Right to Die Legislation Doesn't Violate the Hippocratic Oath. In this, he says, 
Though many people assume that the oath is still taken, it is rarely administered in its original form, if at all. Modern medicine has already ignored the fact that the oath precludes the following, to cut for stone, which is a common urological procedure, and to use the knife, which would prohibit surgery altogether. The oath also directs physicians, including me, to help the sick, so modern interpretation of the oath might be, do what is right for the patient. Many terminally ill patients follow through with the suicide. It is estimated that a little over 100 in both Colorado and D.C. are reported every year. One woman who decided to follow through with physician-assisted suicide is Brittany Maynard. In January 2014, after years of struggling with headaches, Maynard went to the doctor only to discover that she had a glioblastoma multiform, which is the most aggressive and lethal form of brain cancer. She was given six months to live. At that time, physician-assisted suicide was still illegal in Maynard's home state, California, so she and her family decided to move to Oregon, where she would be able to utilize its death with dignity law. Maynard met all of the requirements and was given a prescription that, when ingested, would end her life peacefully and painlessly. Today, we'll be hearing about her story through her perspective from a past interview recorded before Maynard decided to end her life with the help of a physician. Miss Maynard, have you come to terms with what taking the medicine means? Do you think you're prepared? I don't want to die. If anyone wants to hand me like a magical cure and save my life so that I can have children with my husband, you know, I will take them up on it. How did your family deal with your decision to end your own life through physician-assisted suicide? I think it took my family a little while to realize that this is what made sense because no one wants to hear that their daughter is going to die. No mother should have to lose a child. It, it like goes against the grain of nature. But my mother is not to. selfish enough to say, I want one more day where you're suffering. You picked out a day when you would end your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So November 1st became kind of um, a date for me to almost like make it to. So it was more of a goal than it was a deadline. That's the idea and that's a huge misconception and I feel like people who are against this healthcare choice have tried to make it into a deadline and I may be alive on November 2nd <laughs> or I may not and that's my choice. So. When someone tells you that you're committing suicide by ending your life, what do you say to them? Cancer is ending my life. I am choosing to end it a little sooner and in a lot less pain and suffering. What is the saddest aspect of this whole situation? I'd say most of my sadness centers around how much I wanted a family. And it feels like, for me, that was always like how you created a legacy was like through your children. And sort of inadvertently, um, through sharing my story, I've realized um, there's a bit of a legacy I'm creating this way, and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed to attach my name to what I think is a right that should belong to all terminally ill Americans. I really do. Hopefully, Maynard's story gave you a little bit more perspective about this topic. She is just one of the hundreds of Americans who have chosen to commit physician-assisted suicide. Another example of someone who committed physician-assisted suicide is a man named Ethan Rimmel, 
a 41-year-old cancer patient from Washington. Rimmel was diagnosed with cancer and not even a year later committed physician-assisted suicide on June 13, 2011. The hospital where Rimmel got the medication that would end his life, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance's Supportive and Palliative Care Service, determined that only 2.4% of annual deaths in the hospital were due to assisted suicide. The main reason many patients commit physician-assisted suicide, including Rimmel, is because they don't want to deteriorate to the point where they can't interact with others. 97% of patients cited loss of autonomy as reason for participating in Seattle Hospital's program, while nearly 89% pointed to the inability to engage in enjoyable activities, and 75% were concerned about losing dignity. Ethan Rimmel had the medicine months before using it. In his blog, Living While Dying, he said, I have not decided if or when I will use it, but it gives me great relief to know that I have some control over my dying process. Let's talk a little bit more about the motivation for falling through with assisted suicide. Robert Perlman, MD, MPH, and Helen Starks, MP, PhD, conducted a survey of 35 family members who have had relatives commit assisted suicide. They cited nine common factors each falling under one of three categories. Within these categories, reasons for committing assisted suicide overlapped. The first category contains factors that were due to illness-related experiences. 69% of patients did not like feeling weak, tired, and uncomfortable. 66% did not want to experience loss of function, and 40% could not handle the pain or unacceptable side effects of pain medicine. The second category contains factors that threaten the patient's sense of self. 63% of patients cited the main reason for physician-assisted suicide was that they did not want to lose their sense of self. 60% desired control, and 14% already had beliefs that caused them to favor quicker deaths. The final category contains factors that were a result of the patient's fear for the future. 60% of the patients had fears about the future of the quality of their life, and dying. 49% had negative past experiences with dying, and 9% feared being a burden on others. According to hospice nurses, the most prevalent reasons for requesting assistance with suicide were a desire to control the circumstances of death, a desire to die at home, and the belief that continuing to live was pointless. Many patients also worry about developing depression and other psychiatric disorders. Now that we've talked a little bit about the experience from the patient's perspective, Let's discuss the process through the eyes of a physician. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Jack Kevorkian, the most well-known and controversial doctor involved with physician-assisted suicide. First, we will give some background information about Dr. Kevorkian. Then, we will be asking him a few questions. Dr. Kevorkian was born in Pontiac, Michigan in May of 1928. He attended University of Michigan and graduated in 1952 from the University of Michigan Medical School. Throughout the 60s and 70s, Kevorkian worked as a pathologist in Michigan and California. While he was a pathology resident, he advocated carrying out medical experiments on death row inmates. He wanted to carry out experiments on the hour set for their execution and then later give them a lethal injection. This view earned him the nickname Dr. Death. He also advocated for establishing suicide clinics which were called obituaria. In 1982, he retired and decided to devote all of his time to helping patients in their lives. 
Kevorkian gained international attention in 1990 when he assisted in the suicide of Janet Atkins, a 54-year-old woman with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. He was able to do this through the use of his Mercitron machine. This machine was a tank of carbon monoxide attached to a mask, which he would then fit over the face of the patient. He required the patients to make the final decision, so he built a handle which the patients would pull in order to release the gas. Throughout the following three and a half years, he was present in the deaths of 20 other individuals. Evidently, his ideas were found very controversial. Many people believed assisting in another person's death was not moral. In response to this, Kevorkian stated that his sole priority was the welfare of the patients, and most doctors failed their patients by not easing their suffering. Now that we have a little bit of background on Kevorkian and his ideas, let's begin the interview. Hello, Dr. Kevorkian. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started right away. Throughout your career, how many suicides did you assist in? It's around 130. Around a little more than 130. Who was the first patient whose suicide you assisted? Janet Atkins was the first in a van. Why couldn't you just do it in your apartment? I couldn't find a place. I tried mercy, nursing homes, churches. You didn't hospitals. want to do it at your, your. No, because the police would, would raid the apartment, clean it out. And I didn't want to involve anybody else in it, like the, like the landlord. How did you feel ending a human's life in a van? Did you ever doubt you did the right thing or have nightmares about it? Well, well you're, you're, ending, you're not ending the life. I didn't do it to end the life. I did it to end the suffering the patient's going through. The patient's obviously suffering. What's the doctor supposed to do? Turn his back? If, he is, if he's a coward, he is. No. I don't think a doctor should have a nightmare about any medical procedure or else he's not a doctor. If you were in the same position as your patients, living with an incurable disease, would you take your own life? If it was unending pain and there's no cure, of course. I'm doing this for me. See, it's my natural right. That's in the Constitution, in the Ninth Amendment, which is ignored. I have a natural right to do whatever I want with my body, anything, as long as it doesn't affect anybody else or any other property, and, and, and I have give permission, myself permission to do it. That's true of anything. I help a patient only with his permission to do what I think is necessary, and it's all laid out in detail to the patient. So, it has been said that you invented a machine that allowed the patient to kill themselves. Could you talk a little bit about this? That's right. I would set up the machines, all the solutions and everything, in the intravenous line, and then the patient would hit a switch and start everything falling. The machine was just to avoid being charged with the, having committed the crime. After serving years in prison, would you agree to help a patient if they asked you today? Under, under certain circumstances, yes. As long as I know they're not going to throw me in jail again and, and, uh, and, uh, and prison me. Yeah, I will do it again. Have you Thank you, Dr. Kevorkian, for talking to us today. We talked a lot about assisted suicide, and many factors come into play when making a decision of that scale. In the end, it is up to the patients and their families to decide the best path to follow. Since we just talked about a pretty heavy topic, we're going to finish off with a joke to lighten the mood. Does an apple a day really keep the doctor away? Only if you throw it hard enough. So there you have it. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. Be sure to stay tuned to our future Tide podcast. I'm Anna Kate. 
And I'm Claire, and we're signing off.